morning, uh, I do want to um, preach an Easter message. Um, so we're uh, diverting from Revelation this week, and uh, we're going to pick that up next Sunday. Uh, but this morning, uh, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm uh, 16 with me. I've always enjoyed paintings that uh, depict defining moments in history, and a print of one of them hangs in my office, which is the painting of the Battle of Trafalgar, which you have up there on the screen. The original was commissioned by King George VI in 1822, and it commemorates the battle that was fought on October the 21st, 1805. Uh, this was a turning point in European history. For 12 years, Napoleon wanted England as his final and greatest trophy uh, that would complete his domination of Europe. So he planned an all-out invasion by preparing a massive army that would cross the English Channel. Uh, 2,000 French and Spanish ships and 90,000 men were ready for action. And in August of 1805, Napoleon sent the order out to his admirals. Come into the channel. Bring a united fleet and England is ours. If you are only here for 24 hours, all will be over and six centuries of shame and insult will be avenged. Well, his admirals were willing to come, uh, but they could not obey that command because one Englishman stood in the emperor's way. That man was Admiral Horatio Nelson. Nelson is described by historians as a one-armed man, blind in one eye, and shabbily dressed in an admiral's uh, uniform. In other words, this guy was a soldier. He was a brilliant commander, and he had anticipated the invasion by ordering a blockade of British ships uh, at key ports to prevent any enemy from even entering uh, the English Channel. Well, in desperation, Napoleon ordered his fleet anchored at Cadiz in Spain to sail out and meet the British at Cape Trafalgar in the Mediterranean Sea. So an armada of 33 ships set out to break through the blockade to destroy Nelson and make a run for the English coast. They were successful. England was sure to fall. On October the 20th, the enemy fleet was sighted, but Nelson was ready. And 26 British ships of the line sailed out to meet the Armada. Now, in those days, they had a very strange way of fighting naval battles. They would just kind of line up, uh, line against line, and bombard one another with broadsides uh, as they were passing each other until one ship blew another one out of the water, uh, much like Battleship the Game <laughs> today. Well, Nelson decided that rather than sticking to the norm, uh, he would mix things up and surprise the enemy. Uh, he would let the, the Spanish and the French start their uh, procedure of lining up in the normal way, and uh, he would do the same thing. He would sail down the left side of them uh, as if he was going to fight the battle the, the way that it was uh, normally done. But when he got to the middle, he had determined that he would swing his ships to the right and use them as a wedge to split the line and catch the enemy off guard. 
And those plans, he was convinced, would give him a swift victory. Well, this tactic did confuse the enemy, and it allowed Nelson then to deploy the second phase of his attack, which was to take his flagship, the victory, and go in search of the French admiral ship to destroy it. He wanted to uh, cut the head off the snake, as it were. Well, all was well until right in front of him lay the huge Spanish four-decker battleship, the Santissima Trinidad, blocking his path. And Nelson guessed that this was the French admiral's protection ship, so instead of running, he decided to bear down on her. And as he did so, eight or nine enemy ships opened fire on the victory, and in all the smoke and the fire of the battle, Nelson's ship collided with another French ship, the Redoubtable, locking them together. As the two ships drifted slowly through the water, the uh, smoke uh, began to clear, and French marksmen who were posted on the Redoubtable's masts began to spot the epaulets of English officers. So they opened fire, and one marksman from 50 feet away struck Nelson in the top of the shoulder where the ball lodged in his spine. It was a mortal wound. Immediately, the commander was carried below decks while the marksman shot down 40 more officers and men clearing the deck of all but the dead and the wounded. The French saw their opportunity to take their prize, and they boarded the victory. But as they did, a whistle went out, and swarms of marine blue jackets hiding below rushed to the deck and killed every man who managed to board the victory. And then they boarded uh, the enemy ship in turn and captured her. Below decks, Nelson's life was fading away, but he was still conscious when the message came to inform him that 14 enemy vessels had surrendered. He said, that's well, but I bargained for 20. He lingered a little while longer, and then he said very clearly, I have done my duty. I thank God for it. And then he breathed his last. That battle went England's way, and despite heavy British losses, not one of their ships was sunk or captured. Napoleon lost ten times the men, and over two-thirds of his ships were sunk or captured. Trafalgar set the stage for England's supremacy at sea for the next century, during which time her navy became the bedrock of the British Empire. But the gloss of the victory was taken off with the news of Napoleon's death. They lost their national hero. And in a moment of his greatest victory, there was this very bittersweet blow. Two days ago, we remembered an event that changed the course of world history forever. In fact, we commemorated the greatest victory of all time, the victory of the cross. Man is not doomed. The battle over sin and death has been won. Tetelestai, our Lord said, it is finished. Like Admiral Nelson, the Son of God did his duty, and redemption has been won. But at what cost? At the cost of his life. Now, if that were the end of the story, then our victory would be hollow. We'd feel like the sailors on the HMS Victory when it limped back to England 
like a floating coffin with their dead commander on board. In fact, if we lift Christ in the grave, Paul actually lists a damage report for us in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 19. This is the passage uh, the Apostle Paul was quoting in the prayer where he says that if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and our faith is vain. If Christ is not risen, he says, then we're liars and our faith is futile. If Christ is not risen, we are still in our sins. And those who died thinking they were saved actually uh, are, are dead and in eternal hell. And we Christians of all men are the most pitiable, he says, because we hold onto a hope that is no hope. That's the assessment of Scripture, if Christ is not risen. But then he says in verse 20, now Christ is risen from the dead. The hero has returned. And because he lives, the victory at the cross is now verified. The resurrection validates what happened at the cross. This is actually the climactic argument of Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2. Follow along as I read from verse 22. It says to these Jews, they uh, gathered at Jerusalem for the Jewish feast days. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested or approved by God through miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. That was Friday. That's not the end of it. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it, by death. In other words, the resurrection was a divine obligation. If God did not resurrect Jesus Christ and death held him in the grave, then all the purposes of God would have been defeated. It's not possible for death to hold him. Now, Peter proves his point in verses 25 to 28 when he quotes King David from Psalm 16. And this is the passage I'd like us to look at this morning. Psalm 16 gives us the specific reason why death could not hold Jesus Christ. This psalm, I hope you have it open uh, in your Bibles or you're looking on the screen. This psalm was written during a period in David's life when uh, he was Israel's most wanted. Uh, he was an outlaw, cut off from family, from friends, from his royal inheritance as God's anointed. It was during these years that David uh, deliberately spared King Saul's life on two occasions. Uh, once when David and his men were hiding in a cave, and King Saul just happened to pick that cave to relieve himself. It was one opportunity. And then once when David entered Saul's camp at night, and you remember that he took the king's spear and his water bottle. After each of these incidences, Saul called off the manhunt for David and retreated for a while. And it suggested that after that second incident, David wrote Psalm 16 as a testimony of his trust in the Lord. The overall subject of this psalm is simply that David 
chooses the Lord in the midst of all of his circumstances. You can see numerous phrases where he expresses his choice, even though he's living through some very difficult trials as a fugitive from the king. Notice that it is titled a miktam of David. David wrote six miktams in in the Psalms, uh, all of them when he was on the run from Saul. Uh, The word miktam actually has an uncertain meaning. Some think that it refers to a type of poetry genre, one that carries the idea of a mystery uh, or the hiding of a deeper truth underneath the surface. Others think it's some kind of liturgical or musical term. Still others say that it comes from the Hebrew noun for gold, uh, suggesting that this was a golden or a precious uh, meditation of David. Nevertheless, it's interesting that in every miktam there is a prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So just as it is with so many other psalms, Uh, This is one that corresponds to the circumstances in David's life when he wrote it. But it also includes a prophecy about the Messiah, including the wonderful truth of his resurrection in verses 8 to 11, which is what Peter quotes in a sermon 10 centuries after it was written to prove that death could not hold Jesus Christ in the grave. Let's read these verses this morning beginning in verse 8. David writes, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well, first of all, verse 8 gives us the two facts that verify the resurrection, making it valid. If either one of these two facts are not true, then the resurrection could not be possible. The first one relates to a victory within. The second one relates to a victory without. So look at the first statement, if you will. I've set the Lord always before me. That is a statement of victory within. Let me ask you a question. Why did Satan fall? Uh, As Lucifer, you remember, he was created as the perfect being. So what caused him to fall And why didn't Jesus fall in the same way? Well, the fall of Satan and the angels can only be understood when we realize that they were created as servants of God. Uh, Everything about Lucifer was made to act under God's direction. Nothing was to be done outside the will of God. You could say that he was created with the Lord always before him. And the secret to reaching his highest potential uh, lay in maintaining that relationship with God. And yet he fell. And his fall into sin was the direct result of placing self before God. Uh, Isaiah records that Satan said to himself, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. 
So instead of setting the Lord always before him, he turned his back upon God to serve himself. The Apostle Jude, in his little book, also tells us how the angels sinned. He says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. You'll notice the fact that they left their own abode. They left their God-given place in heaven. That was not the punishment for their sin, as if they were told to leave, but here it is given as the sin itself. They refused to remain in the position that God had assigned to them. So the punishment is that they are now reserved in everlasting chains under darkness waiting for the final judgment. But the sin in that passage was turning their back on God. It was putting self before him, just as it was for their leader. On the other hand, Jesus, in all areas of his life and ministry, was able to say, I have set the Lord always before me. He has been first place in everything in my life. Never was there a time when Jesus acted apart from the will of his Father. He said to the Jews in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven, but it's not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And he never strayed from that mission. Never did he leave his God-given place as the suffering servant and substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of the world. This was his victory within. You see, if Christ had not been in perfect harmony with his Father, if he had sinned even one time by refusing to follow God's will, by turning his back on the Father, if he did not set the Lord always before him in every circumstance and in every moment, he could not rise from the dead. Death would have another victim because Jesus would have had to pay for that sin. Therefore, he could not pay for anybody else's sin. That's why I'm saying the resurrection of Christ is verified by his victory within. It's validated because he won the battle over sin in his own life, and that was the first battle won. Secondly, the resurrection of Christ was verified by his victory over evil without. For the next phase of his victory, marked by the words, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Now, does that differ from the first statement? Here's the difference. The first fact highlights the Savior's internal resolve to submit himself to his Father's will. The second fact highlights the resolve not to fall to temptation from without. This is where Adam fell. The fall of the angels resulted from failing to make the Lord number one. But the fall of man, well, it, it did involve not making the Lord number one, but it began from without. In other words, man did not originate sin. It did in the human race, but it didn't originate sin itself. But he fell under the power of it by giving in to an attack from without, from Satan. Well, Jesus was also victorious in this area. Having submitted himself uh, to the Father, 
Uh, he held up against all attacks of the enemy from without. Even when the devil tempted him at his weakest, after 40 days without food, Christ did not fall. He kept God at his right hand, which signifies a place of protection and defense. And in that place, he did not move. You know, at a wedding uh, ceremony, the bridegroom stands at the right side of the bride uh, as a symbol of his pledge to protect her. Uh, in the ancient world, a bodyguard stood on the right side of the one he was protecting. Uh, it was the right side because then he could cover him with his shield on his left side and still have his right arm free to fight, uh, assuming he's right-handed, of course. Well, the Messiah kept God at his right hand, and the reality of God's presence in his life acted as a wall of defense so that God was between him and every attack of the enemy. So again, Jesus could rise from the dead because he remained unmoved in spite of every broadside of the devil aimed at changing his relationship to God. The Lord's cry was, I shall not be moved. God is at my right hand. So verse 8 verifies the resurrection in these two ways, making it impossible for death to hold him. Death has no claim on the Son of God because he withstood sin and temptation from within and without. And because of that, in verses 9 and 10, we see now the Messiah's confidence in being resurrected. Verse 9 says, Therefore, because of verse 8, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. In Acts 2, Peter translates the word glory as the word tongue. So the heart, the tongue, and the flesh are satisfied. And these terms are referring to the whole person, signifying that Christ is full of joy. Why? Because having claimed the victory within and without, he is full of confidence that God indeed will raise him from the dead. You know, that word for flesh actually refers to his physical body, his physical flesh. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus endured the cross because of the joy set before him. He endured the suffering and the pain in his physical body. He even was willing to commit it to the grave because he had the confident expectation that it would be raised to life again. His flesh rested in that hope. So verse 10 says, the confident expression. When he says here, uh, the flesh will rest in hell because you, God the Father, will not leave my soul in Sheol. Again, Peter translates that as Hades. This is referring to the abode of the dead. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption or decay. On the one hand, he will pass into the realms of Hades. For his death on the cross, he entered the place where unsaved dead spirits dwell. Now, it's not their final resting place. That's the lake of fire. But it is another place of torment. According to 1 Peter 3.19, Christ entered Hades, and there it is that he preached to the spirits in prison, proclaiming his victorious work at the cross. 
But because of the first two victories in verse 8, it was impossible for death and Hades to hold Christ in that place forever. In fact, his body would not even decay in the grave because God must raise him. He must bring him back to life. So here was a man who for the first and last time in history gained a double victory over sin internally and externally. And as such, he could be a substitute and take upon himself the sins of the whole world. And in those solemn hours between it is finished and resurrection morning, the body of that man lies in the tomb, but his spirit passes into Hades with the lost spirits. Now read the verse again. You will not leave my soul in Hades. Why not? Well, because the penalty of man's sin has been paid. Jesus does not need to stay there, but he must rise as the complete victor over death and the grave. Death could not hold him. Well, verse 11 now gives us the benefits of resurrection, the spoils of that victory. When David writes, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So Christ has returned to glory on the path of resurrection life. And in the presence of his Father, there's fullness of joy. Now he is seated at the right hand of God where there are pleasures forevermore. Now at this point, you might be thinking, well, that's wonderful theology. But how do I take it to work on Monday morning or Tuesday morning? Uh, How do I use it when the kids are in tow at the shops? Uh, What can I put in my pocket and take home today? Where's the application of the resurrection to my life? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because as much as this passage applies to Christ, as much as it applied to David when he wrote it, it also applies to you and me and anyone who will put their faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. I want you to think of it this way. His victory is our victory. So that when Peter argued that God loosed the pains of death because death could not hold the Messiah, in the same way he loosed the pains of Mike Quark's death because it's not possible that he should be held by it. This is the impact of resurrection power. In other words, Christ did not conquer death for himself alone. He conquered death full stop. And that can be applied to all men and women of all time who put their faith in what was done at Calvary. How does that work for us practically today? How can we apply the victory of the resurrection through Christ? Well, think back through the verses. Think of verse 8 and the victory that Christ had over sin internally or the ability to always set the Father before him. Because Christ rose again, we can claim that same victory through faith in him. Likewise, the victory Christ had over sin externally with the Father at his right hand. It's the same victory we can claim through faith in him. This is the argument that the Apostle Paul lays out in Romans 6. Remember, the Apostle uh, there is countering the argument that the grace of God gives us license to sin. He writes in verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You place your faith in Jesus Christ 
and his work on the cross. You associate with him in his death. But not only that, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. But just like Christ was not left in the grave, Paul continues when he says that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. What does that look like? Well, it looks like the life of Christ when he was on earth. It looks like the twofold victory of verse 8. Let's apply that in a very practical way. If you're going to walk in newness of life, you must first of all, number one, live out the presence of God. Can we say, as Jesus did, that the Lord is always before me in every place, in every circumstance, in every social setting, in every employment, in every situation of life? I mean, I've always set the Lord before, him, before me so that his interests take precedence over my interests. In other words, are we living in the reality of his presence? It's a sad thing that so many believers today are practical atheists. A practical atheist is someone who claims to know God, but he lives as if he doesn't exist. God is not real in life. He's just some distant relative that we visit on a Sunday. If that's the case for you, then you need to question whether or not you truly are saved. But maybe this also answers the question of why you're struggling with sin in your life as a believer. Because the way to deal with sin's presence is to counter it with an awareness of the presence of God. So are you living with the reality that God is near? Uh, some of you will be familiar with the name Brother Lawrence the 17th century monk. Brother Lawrence was born in Paris to peasants. But after coming to Christ, he dedicated himself to the monastery. When he got to the monastery, they said, all right, you can, be, you can do kitchen duties. He was assigned kitchen duties for the next 15 years. How would you like that? Imagine having that job to a monastery full of men. But his unusual wisdom came to light and it brought the attention of the cardinal. And the cardinal asked Brother Lawrence for an audience, and he was granted four conversations with Brother Lawrence. These conversations, along with just a couple of pages of personal reflection that he penned and left in his belongings, and 16 letters that he wrote, formed the material for his only book published after his death entitled The Practice of the Presence of God. Brother Lawrence believed that all common business, no matter how mundane, no matter how routine, was a medium for loving God. He wrote, it is not needful that we should have great things to do. We can do little things for God. I turn the cake that is frying on the pan for love of Him. And that done, if there is nothing else to call me, I prostrate myself in worship before Him who has given me grace to work. Afterwards, I rise happier than a king. It is enough for me to pick up but a straw from the ground for the love of God. He said that he came to the place where he lived, as he wrote, as if there was no one else but God and me in the world, 
and together God and Brother Lawrence cooked meals, ran errands, scrubbed pots, and endured the scorn of the world. This kind of lifestyle became known and associated with the Latin term Coram Deo. Coram Deo is Latin for before God. It was used by the Reformers to describe a life that was lived before the face of God. Brother Lawrence spent his life, as he described it, yielding to the presence of God. But we have to learn to live in that same way, Coram Deo. Even in the most menial of daily tasks, so that it becomes you and God picking up the kids from school. It is you and God in the car on the way to work. It is you and God doing the family finances and running errands and so on. Practicing the presence of God is how you apply the victory of resurrection power in your life. Secondly, we have to apply the resurrection. We must live under the protection of God. To live under God's protection is to live with Him, verse 8, at your right hand. When I was a boy, uh, we used to travel about an hour to, to school by car. And uh, we would, to cut down some of the travel, we would carpool with another family. And because I was uh, the oldest, sometimes I would sit in the front seat of another lady's car and her smaller children would sit in the back. Well, one day we were driving home from uh, the school, which was in Campbelltown, and uh, she, she had to hit the brakes very suddenly. And as we skidded to a stop, she instinctively put out her arm to protect me. You mothers know what this is, right? Uh, she was defending me from a potential traffic accident. Uh, well, when God is at your right hand, He instinctively puts His arm in front of you to protect you from impending danger. And with His omnipotent, everlasting arm in front of you, you can say, as Christ did, I shall not be moved. Is it your right hand? Or is he at your right hand? Uh, he should be at your right hand this morning. Are you calling on him to protect you from the attacks of the enemy? And finally, we can apply this message in the promise that all those who believe in Jesus will be resurrected like the Lord. We will be resurrected with a bodily resurrection. We will experience the same benefits that he experienced in verse 11. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Christ's resurrection is the cause, the earnest, the guarantee, and the emblem of the rising of all his people. Let them therefore go to their graves as to their beds, resting their flesh among the clods, the clods of earth, as they now do upon their couches. Since Jesus is mine, I'll not fear undressing. And he's talking about taking off his physical body in death but gladly put off these garments of clay to die in the Lord as a covenant blessing since Jesus to glory through death led the way. Like the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is the first fruits of a resurrection harvest to follow. And we will be part of that harvest if we have put his faith in him. Verse 11 says, you will show me the path of life, the path of resurrection life, which is what this is referring to. Jesus opened up the way of eternal life. 
after his death and resurrection. And his pioneering work has forged the path for others to follow. And if he is your Savior, then you are on that path. Eternal life, resurrection life is guaranteed for you. But if you are not on that path, then beware. The Bible says there are only two paths. The narrow path to heaven or the broad path to hell. And if you refuse to accept what Jesus did for you on the cross, then my friend, you are following the wrong path. And I urge you to consider the path that you are on before it is too late. Ask Jesus to come into your heart. Take the narrow way to life. The Bible says that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will find the path of life. Secondly, when you take that path, there is fullness of joy. David says that such fullness comes from being in the presence of God. On earth, we may live with the knowledge of God's presence physically when we see Him. But in heaven, our eyes will behold Him. And we shall experience fullness of joy without end. And then finally, he says, there are pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. And I love this. Notice, He is at your right hand in verse 8. Now, you are at His right hand, at the place of privilege as God's child. You followed the path of the Lord Jesus Christ, which He forged for us by His death and resurrection. Now we will reap the pleasures that He enjoys at the right hand of the Father. These are the blessings that we celebrate on Easter. I loved watching the Australian Open tennis tournament this past January. I hope that you watched it. Maybe some of you did. Maybe others of you didn't even know it was on. I enjoyed it particularly because I'm a longtime fan of Rafael Nadal. For those of you who don't know, uh, he is a Mallorcan player, a Spanish player, one of the greatest. Some would argue the greatest of all time, G-O-A-T, the GOAT of tennis. But in line for the same title are two other rivals. Roger Federer, the pretender, and Novak Djokovic, the Serbian. The argument goes like this. Well, how can Federer be the GOAT if Nadal has soundly beat him throughout his career? How can Nadal be the GOAT when Djokovic has consistently beat him in more recent years? How can Djokovic be the GOAT when Federer has a glowing record of beating him? And so the debate rages. Well, Nadal's success in four Opens has arguably uh, arguably been the lowest at the Australian Open. And I say that because when he came into the tournament in January, he'd only won that tournament once, which is impressive. Uh, But he's won the other three at least twice, and some of them many more times. So I was very skeptical when he entered the final Uh, against Daniel Medvedev, and I was certain he would lose when he was two sets down and his serve was broken in the third. Uh, Every point was just so emotional. Every game was a nail-biter. I couldn't bear the humiliation of watching him lose the match. So like most Australians, I turned off the TV and went to bed, expecting to wake up to the news that Medvedev was the new Australian Open Championship, and I was mad. 
Late at night, the tennis spirits woke me up. I was compelled to look at the final score. I discovered that Nadal had mounted one of the greatest comebacks in tennis history and had taken the crown to win his second Australian Open. Well, I had to watch the last three sets. So I put on the recording about a week later, and I watched it with my wife, and I felt so relaxed. I enjoyed the experience. No nail in my hand had to be sacrificed to nerves. I had no moments when a lump formed in my throat at the thought it was over. I was calm. I was peaceful. I thoroughly enjoyed Nadal spanking Medvedev all over the court in five sets. Why? Because I knew who won. <laughs> Nadal already had the trophy back there in Mallorca. Well, the church is not fighting a war with an uncertain outcome. The victory has been won because the Lord has risen. That victory has been verified. Sin, death, and the grave cannot finally triumph over his people. Now, yes, the battle often thickens. At times, it presses upon us as weary soldiers, and it feels like we're two sets down and broken in the third. But these are only skirmishes that we face on the way to final victory, a victory that is secure. So, let your heart be glad, let your tongue rejoice, and rest in hope, because he has won, and we shall rise. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how glad we are for the victory of the resurrection. How thankful we are that you willingly came down in obedience, gave yourself on the cross a substitution for us, that all who believe and enjoy the forgiveness of sins to be given status as your children. Help us to live in the joy of resurrection power. Help us to live as the Lord Jesus Christ lived. Claim the victory over death and sin in this life. Give you thanks, Father, for what you have done and what you will do as we continue to submit to you. Father, the battle is tough. The smoke everywhere. The challenges ahead of us. See the church faltering. Father, let us lay hold of that victory that is secure. Let us move ahead with rejoicing and gladness. And, uh, we offer our thanks and praise to you, especially on this morning. Jesus, we pray.